Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, a science writer at Technology Networks, and today's episode, I'm joined by my colleagues, Laura Lansdowne and Karen Stewart. How are you both? Good, yeah, pretty good. Great stuff. Today, we'll be looking at the movement towards environmentally friendly research. While scientists are at the coalface of the battle against climate change, some research labs are among the most energy intensive workspaces and practices to make labs more eco-friendly have often been slow to take off. If you've downloaded this podcast via the Technology Network site, you'll have also received our free poster on how to make your lab greener, which is a great place to start with your own research in this area. On today's podcast, we'll be going through some of the work that our editorial team have put together on green labs, which you can take a closer look at in the show notes. A good place to start is our infographic on creating an environmentally stable lab, uh, which touched on the biggest eco-offenders in lab spaces. Now, while this infographic touched on a, a load of different areas, I think one of the, the best places to start is talking about energy consumption in labs. Now, energy consuming aspects of labs are, are generally equipment based, whilst uh, things like lighting, for example, have been classically problems in, in labs just Space is not introducing things like time off switches for when there's no one in the lab. These are starting to change more, but nonetheless, the, the foundations of a, a good research lab are often energy intensive pieces of equipment. So these are things like minus 80 freezers, which scientists use to store their samples, or fume hoods where they conduct the day-to-day uh, research um, with cell cultures, for example. Now, it would be all well and good for me as a, as a journalist sitting here and say, scientists go and buy a new fume hood but that can often be a big cost for labs. But what I want to make clear is that the changes that uh, our, our, our research has turned up suggest that these changes don't have to be substantial. Uh, there are plenty of tips and, and easy tricks you can undertake to both save money in your lab, make it more eco-friendly, and also do that while requiring little work. Now, fume hoods, I've already mentioned, are a good place to start. This is because your average fume hood will use three and a half times as much energy in a year as a average household will. These are really, really energy guzzling machines. And that's often because they're having to drag in purified air from outside a lab's building. And uh, that few, that flow of clean air has to be maintained for as long as researchers have the front of the, the hood called the sash open and, and they're doing research within that. But as a good example of something which really doesn't cost much and, and can save quite a lot of money. Uh, researchers at the University of California, Davis, and another couple of campuses within the University of California saved $1,300 per hood simply by sticking a sash sticker on the front of the, the sash, which reminded users to close up the front of their hood when they weren't using it. And that in itself obviously doesn't cost much to whack a sticker on the front of your, your hood and, uh, and save them all this money. Now, of course, if you are buying a new piece of equipment, you can uh, invest in a modern ductless hood, and these can save a bit more than that, up to $6,000 annually. Um, but uh, yeah, good to focus on these changes, I think, folks, that, that don't require uh, you to buy a, a whole whole, uh, whole different kind of uh, hood. What, what in, in your research backgrounds for the, the big piece of equipment you used, what were the, the big uh, energy guzzlers? I would say from our point of view, um, some of the ultra low temperature freezers 
they can really consume large um, amounts of energy. Uh, but there's a there's actually a, um, an energy rating now called Energy Star. Um, so that gives you an idea of some of the, if you're looking at purchasing a newer ultra low temperature freezer, it can give you an idea of some of those are a little bit more eco-friendly. Um, so help your purchasing decisions, so to speak. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Freezers are another um, piece of equipment that tend to be a, a big culprit. Um, an interesting factor here is that while you say, of course, if you're if you're buying a new freezer again, it's, it's really important to check out rating systems like Energy Star. Even with the freezers you currently have, these things tend to have a, a lifespan of up to 20 years. So you might be thinking, if I'm not going to get rid of my freezer, how can I cut down on the energy use? Well, up to even as recently as 10, 15 years ago, your average ultra low temperature freezer was set to about minus 73 Celsius. Now, currently, the, the byword for ultra low temperature freezers is a minus 80 freezer. And uh, that 10 degree uh, temperature differential has, has been implemented because some samples at least will require that lower temperature. But ultimately, uh, a lot of different samples are used, for example, proteins and nucleic acids can actually get by just fine if they're stored at that slightly warmer minus 70 temperature. And the cost saving of, of uh, implementing that change is is substantial, but even greater is the energy saving change. So here in the UK, where we're broadcasting from, an average large detached house in the UK uses 4,000 kilowatt hours per year, roughly. Now, dialing down a single ultra low temperature freezer to minus 70 instead of minus 80 can save 1,400 kilowatt hours per year. That one was quite shocking for me. I thought folks like the idea that you can kind of save half a house just by turning down a, a dial in a freezer. I mean, that's that's a pretty simple change, right? That's some pretty staggering figures there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just kind of drills it, it hammers it home, really, like these little changes, just how significant they are. Um, just going back to your question, Ruri, about, um, you know, from my experience in a lab, which kind of things um, I've kind of seen consume uh, the most amount of energy similar to Karen I'd say ultra low freezers and um, we I used to work in like a pipeline team so we used to handle a lot of samples but also although we had our own freezers a lot of our sample management was done by another team so I think it's also being aware of I guess what other teams are doing and how they're handling things and I guess sharing information about these things as well across different departments to help I mean, I shudder to think that the last lab I worked in, uh, you know, you'd go to the the freezer room, which um, for anyone who hasn't worked in a, a research lab, certainly in the, the one I was in, was this uh, room off to the side that you'd only ever go in to to get samples out. But then when you cracked open the the freezer, the the rows and rows of samples, which you could you could see the samples which are used regularly, but then you'd have the sort of dark matter at the back of the freezer that uh, was so irregularly used. Um, by any staff that you didn't even know kind of what the source of the the source of the sample was or where it had come from. In addition to these elements around sample storage, it's also interesting to note that freezers become way less efficient as they get older. So uh, older freezers can use as much as a thousand pounds, about thirteen hundred dollars annually in, in plug load electricity. So uh, just extra extra cost that comes from uh, their age and also from um, dust and, and uh, other matter building up in the condenser coils at the, the back of freezers can really reduce their 
their energy use. So I guess even just cleaning out your freezer that you have in your in your lab, even if you can't afford or, or aren't at the right point in the lifespan to buy a new one, can be the, the kind of things that can save money with regards to your equipment. Uh, another really handy thing to, to keep track of is whether in, in your academic environment you can get rebate for uh, getting rid of your old freezers. These are a kind of equipment that often can have rebates for them, so do look into this and, and see if you can actually look to save money by investing in a new, more efficient freezer and also get some money back for your old one. Um, and I think what Karen was mentioning about Energy Star labeling, there's also um, other labels that you can look towards when you're you're picking equipment. I won't um, I would jump in to head head of this Karen because I know you'll be talking about act labeling for later in the in the podcast, but that's a, a really important aspect of of how you can pick the right equipment for for environmentally conscious lab. Another really important element of um, environmentally sustainable labs is keeping an eye on chemical waste. Now, I think certainly in my lab, the, the amount of chemical waste that we used was, I, you know, I shudder to think of of all the, the different sources, but one that seems particularly uh, unnecessary is the, the waste that's produced from microscopes. Now, what, I, I don't know, did either of you guys use microscopes in, in your day-to-day -day research? And I wonder if you can remember what kind of microscopes you use. We did. Um, so we did some with light, mic mi uh, light microscopy, so they're not too bad, the chemicals and things you're using for that. But certainly when you're doing preparations for electron microscopy, some of the chemicals you're using are pretty hazardous. Um, and even if you've got something, because they don't necessarily last that long either, so you may have leftover chemicals that have gone out of date that you can't use anymore. Um, so yeah, getting rid of those kind of chemical waste can cause quite a problem. From my perspective, I didn't have much um, to do with microscopes. I was more genetics and liquid handling, robotics, etc. So um, not too much to add on that one. What I found was interesting, Karen, is that even if you've got a, a light microscope that might not use chemicals in the, the staining process, for example, uh, since the 1930s, microscopes have traditionally used uh, light sources that are relying on uh, uh, gases kept at really high pressure. So um, xenon light sources, for example, or even older than that, the traditional mercury light sources. These were introduced because compared to traditional lamps, they're up to 100 times brighter, but there is a whole load of setbacks around these kind of lamps that um, really have an impact on the environment. So these bulbs are they have a really short lifespan. So typically one of these bulbs might have a, a 200 hour lifespan, um, as you'll find out soon. That's uh, that's pretty pathetic, even that if that does sound like a, a lot of hours. Um, these bulbs also have a tendency to explode on you. Now that can result in uh, fragments of metal and glass at 800 degrees flying around your lab, which is hardly ideal. Um, but even if you do manage to get to the end of one of these bulbs lifespans without it blowing up in your face, uh, when they're disposed of the, the mercury, for example, that's contained within these bulbs can leak back into the environment. There's about 110 milligrams of mercury in one of these bulbs. Um, mercury is, is one of these heavy metals that has a tendency to bioaccumulate uh, in the ecosystem. So this can lead to problems with aquatic animals, for example, having really high levels of, of mercury in their in their bodies, which obviously then feeds back into back into people. So um, there's a, a lot of elements to consider just even around the, the microscopes themselves. 
but um, there's a, a bigger tendency now to use more environmentally friendly light sources. So these are based on LEDs. Um, solid state light engines are a much more common form of light source now that are arguably superior to these old uh, mercury-based uh, light sources. So the lifespan of these microscope bulbs is in the order of tens of thousands of hours uh, rather than the, the 200 for the, the mercury sources. And uh, the fact that these bulbs can have a, a much easier standby mode, so the, the old mercury ones tended to be required to be on for the entirety of an experiment regardless of whether the light source is being used. Um, but these new LED-based ones have standby modes which can save a reduction of 50-fold in, in power consumption. Um, now again, I have a, a wary of, of just talking about these amazing new technologies um, if they weren't actually being used properly or maybe weren't up to scratch. I mean, there's a reason, as I said earlier, that these murky ones became popular in the first place. But um, a brief look at some of the major microscope manufacturers. Uh, I was really surprised actually to see that on their site, it's now the OLED and the, the solid state microscope light sources that are being listed first. I mean, they had this, this one manufacturer, which will remain nameless, uh, had a couple of murky ones listed, but it was all about the solid state ones and all about the, the LED ones that were, were coming up first, which I was, I was really happy to see. Um, because uh, as I mentioned at the start, I, I've been wary that some of these these environmentally friendly programs were, were getting um, not much traction, but clearly this is one area in which people are starting to talk about it more and it's becoming more common, which is, which is really exciting. Um, another area of the infographic, which uh, I'm not going to talk about too much was uh, consumables in the lab. And the reason I'm not going to talk about that too much is because another one of our infographics on reducing plastic in the lab um, also went into this. Uh, I, I believe, Karen, you'd had a, a look at that in more detail. Do you want to talk about the kind of salient points of how to cut down on plastic? Yeah, sure. So uh, the headline from this infographic is estimated that the biomedical and agricultural labs worldwide responsible for a staggering 5.5 million tonnes of plastic waste every year. That's a lot of tips. Um, having spent quite a considerable amount of time working as a bench scientist, I'm also aware of the amount of plastics you can get through in a single day. So it goes from the packaging that your equipment and your consumables turn up in, to the tips that you use when you're pipetting, to the 96 well plates or petri dishes. Um, the list goes on, even um, reagent bottles so much plastic in the lab um, and for most labs the majority of this is going to go into um, sterilization usually through an autoclave and then be incinerated in all likelihood so it's either going to get burnt or it's going to end up in the landfill uh, there's a lot of wastage um, and for you know for some people who aren't used to working in a lab they think well why can't you just recycle it but it's not necessarily that simple because if you've got items that have come into contact with um, infection material or biohazards, then it you can't just pop it in the recycling. However, there are lots of simple ways that you can do. So the packaging that your uh, items come in, so the polystyrene boxes, that sort of thing, they can be recycled. If you're using tips, you might not necessarily be able to recycle the tips themselves. However, they normally come in plastic boxes. You could recycle those. Um, so there are lots of ways that you can look to re recycle the parts that you can do. Um, and certainly while, I mean, one of the big differences I found whilst I was working in the lab, uh, more of the companies that we used for, uh, for pet tips, they introduced a system whereby instead of getting your filter tips, 
in a brand new box each time, they would just come in a little rack and the rack was actually made out of a recycled potato starch. So it, it looked and it felt like plastic, but it's biodegradable. So that part's biodegradable. You're not getting a new plastic box each time either. You just have one box that you reuse over and over. And over the course of a year, it really does make a dent on the amount of plastic waste that you're getting through. Now, something else that's been brought up for reducing plastic waste is to use glassware. It's a bit of a double-edged sword because, yes, you're reducing your use of single-use plastics. However, you have to take into account um, the fact that you're then having to put those glassware items through an autoclave, which means you're using a lot more energy in terms of heating it up and sterilising it, and also water and the detergents you're putting back into the environment as well in the in the wastewater that comes out of that. So it might seem like a good alternative, but it's worth bearing in mind it's not a simple as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Remind me, I, I always working, sorry Laura, working in the lab I always would be would think like, ah yes, this this box of the eight thousand tips I've gone through today is now going off to the autoclave. What exactly is an autoclave? especially for our listeners that, that might not be familiar with one. It's it's like a big pressure awful oven of the of, of bacterial death that just, I imagine, drinks in energy, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's essentially a giant pressure cooker. So it, you take your, your waste in your biohazard bag or your clay bag rather, it's sealed up and it's put in the chamber and it you, normally, sometimes you'll pierce the bag as well because it will heat it up and it also injects lots of really hot steam into it so it needs to the steam needs to be able to get in to sterilize everything so essentially it's just killing everything that's in there and that's its role to make sure that your anything that was living when it went in is dead when it comes out so it doesn't get rid of your hazardous chemicals and ideally you probably don't want to be putting hazardous chemicals in there because the staff who are using the autoclave are then going to be coming into contact with that um, but in terms of biological so bacterial um, agents viruses that kind of thing it kills everything just uses however many thousands of kilowatt hours per year to do so uh, were you going to say something laura yeah i was just going to say my background obviously is with more li liquid handling robotics and obviously you're prepping those pieces of equipment with a scary number of pipette tips regularly and then you're obviously emptying those pipette tips out afterwards so just physically seeing the amount that you use on one run of an experiment really does hit home. I was going to ask you um, both. So obviously, I think scientists are becoming more and more aware of how how they can be more sustainable. Do you think that manufacturers have been, become more competitive in terms of trying to make their products more sustainable? Have you noticed more interest from manufacturers recently? Well, here's the thing from my perspective. I mean, it would be one thing when you you see with as with a lot of environmental efforts it's non-profits and, and charities that are kind of leading the way and i think that is still the same in uh, in lab um eco efforts but the number of big manufacturers and you know not, not just small kind of alternatives that say oh we're the, the eco-friendly alternative you know the, the number of big manufacturers that seem to be getting at least nominally on the bandwagon you know companies like uh corning and and uh, Kimberly Clark and Fisher Scientific, a lot of these bigger companies seem to be really um, investing in at least uh, recycling programs and and uh, more eco-friendly um, 
options, but I guess it's up to individual scientists to kind of judge whether or not their, their efforts are going far enough. And I'm, I'm sure given that the the number of pipette tips that <laughs> go into one of these boxes hasn't changed, you know, there's probably more work that can be done. I don't know what you think, Karen. Yeah, I would agree with that, definitely. That um, I think it's very driven by the consumers, like the scientists in the lab, that they're pushing for more ecologically friendly options. And that's what's driving the companies to explore these um, they want to give their consumers what they want. Um, so for us, I mentioned there was one particular, so Star Labs, they brought out their eco line with um, recycling efforts and they would also collect your empties as well. So there's a returns policy, so it's not going to landfill, you're not having to recycle it yourself, they would actually come and collect. Um, so yeah, I think there is a real push towards that. And I think as long as there's a desire from the consumers, a lot of the companies are going to be pushed more to go towards that and if they're not offering those options then they might see their their um client base suffering as a result of that it's a really good point i think uh obviously with our amazingly persuasive facts and figures we've presumably convinced every listener on the podcast now to uh, change their lab and make it as eco-friendly as possible but the next question they might have is where do i start who do i look to who's leading the the efforts towards this um and that's that's another thing that, that we've done in technology networks is speak to a lot of thought leaders in the field um, who have who have led efforts in this area. Now, as I briefly mentioned, nonprofits and and, and charities have been um, some of the biggest players in the the market, and one that um, certainly I've I've uh, worked with on on some articles and interviews in the past are um, American nonprofit My Green Lab. Uh, they tend to put their efforts into raising awareness of eco friendly lab options and any academic prof conference I've been to, they've popped up somewhere in the, in the, the exhibitor hall with some inventive, uh, inventive way of finding out more about the, the environmental impact of research. So I've um, interviewed the their former CEO, Alison Paradise, a, a couple of times. And, and Karen, I, I know you spoke to her recently when she was still CEO to um, discuss uh, the ACT labels, I think, that I mentioned earlier. Um, could you go into a bit more detail about what you spoke about then? Yeah, sure. So um, the ACT label stands for Accountability, Consistency, Transparency, and it acts like a, a nutrition label, but for lab equipment and consumables. So you might be using a particular reagent or something, but for the, the normal scientist, how do you determine that the, that reagent from this vendor is more eco-friendly than the reagent if I have it from this vendor? And it's not just about the way the reagent itself uh, is produced it's about how it's packaged and shipped so it's it's an easy way for consumers either the lab scientists to be able to make good decisions about um, the the products that they're choosing uh, in an accessible way um, it's not something that's um, mandatory but they're finding that a lot of the the scientists are wanting this information therefore it's it's driving some of the manufacturers to invest in this, because there is an initial cost to the uh, to the manufacturers to join this scheme because they have to undertake an audit. So um, about the way it's produced, uh, the way it's packaged, the way it's shipped, all these elements. But not only is it then helping their customers make good decisions, it's helping them as well because it's it's making them look at the process that they're using and are there ways that they can reduce the environmental, environmental impact of what they're doing? Can they make it more sustainable? Can they even reduce the costs themselves by doing that? 
So it's a, it's a bit of a win-win. Mm -hmm. Is um is the ACT label something that could be adopted globally, or is it is the scheme kind of restricted to certain areas at the minute? Do you know that? Uh, as far as I know, it's global and open to anyone. Okay. It's so it's third third party uh, verified information. Mm -hmm. uh, it's completely vendor neutral. So I was just trying to I have some figures on this somewhere. So currently, I think they have 250 products that are using the ACT labeling scheme, but they've also got another 300 in the queue that are set to join the scheme by the end of this year. Oh, wow. So it really seems like it's taken off. There's yeah, a lot of organizations on board that are using this scheme as part of their procurement system, mm -hmm. taking that into account when they're picking their products, they're using this information. Okay. That's awesome. I think um, I think you raised a, a good point there, Karen, that the the consumer or scientist, I guess, has, has so much power in the situation. Um, certainly when I spoke to Alison a couple of years back at the Society for Neuroscience Conference, that was something that she really hammered home, is that a lot of the research she's, research, researchers that she'd spoken to uh, had similar sentiments, just thinking uh, they hadn't really given much thought to things like how much energy their freezer used or they'd just been kind of going with protocol in the lab because if things have worked in the past in terms of getting scientific publications completed then then a lot of researchers might not want to change them that's that's understandable but uh, i think just considering that these these companies the, the vendors want to please scientists and if the groundswell of opinion moves towards saying we want products that not only work for our experiments but also don't have a, a huge environmental cost at the same time then then they'll answer those costs and one thing she said to me that, that made me think back was was saying to your your sales rep for example when you're procuring your latest antibody maybe don't send the 0.25 mils of the antibody to me in a packaging container that could be used to ship a washing machine next time that's a that's something i remember you know on, on delivery day getting what looked like you know enough to satisfy uh, satisfy a millionaire's child at Christmas in terms of box size and then there'd be uh, two tiny vials in, in the bottom of it all but the, the amount of polystyrene that was used the amount of cardboard that was used to contain these things it was always crazy for me I don't know about you folks. Yeah absolutely every time you go up to stores in the morning and there were these massive boxes outside and you're like whoa who's, who's ordered something amazing and yeah it's one tiny little vial in the bottom usually with a, you know, a little bit of ice or an ice pack or something but it's yeah it seems like overkill or you'll have um, three shipments from the same vendor company to the same organization that have all come in separate massive packages and you think could you not have put those three in together mm, yeah, yeah absolutely I also found as well so from using like the liquid handling robotics we used to use like pre-prepped kits um, and just the amount of kind of cardboard and packaging in each kit that you just literally throw away as soon as you've got your buffers out and everything is just it's just crazy how quick you fill those bins up so it is definitely something that needs addressing from talking to Alison obviously there's different areas that we can kind of take action so energy water waste hazardous chemical use did she kind of indicate where's best to start in a lab if you're wanting to take those initial steps to introduce more sustainable options is there one of those that you could target first 
I remember her saying that the important, most important thing is communicating with your fellow scientists and with the the academia you work with. I suppose that the one that will be most important will probably change between labs, but she seemed to indicate that the, the first step should always be just checking whether or not your academic organization has something in place to even begin a platform. Because if you're you know, an early career researcher or a PhD student, you might feel like you individually don't have any power over things. But if you work together with your fellow scientists and, and start up a, a platform, then you can start making those changes, which will be variable based on the, the kind of work your lab does, I suppose. Yeah, I guess with making changes as well, especially if it's just you initially, you might not be able to go out and buy a new freezer or anything like that. But you can make simple changes like when you have finished using a piece of equipment, make sure you turn it off. If you're using a PCR machine, rather than leaving it to um, sustain its temperature over the weekend, make sure you take your PCR off before you go home on a Friday night. You know, simple little things like that, even turning off the lights. You can yeah. start, you know, things like that, catch on with your colleagues and think, oh, actually, you've got a point. Yeah. Do you think, so from being at university, do you think we need more emphasis on sustainability whilst scientists are studying? So, because... In, during my undergraduate degree, I don't really remember there being a specific focus on sustainability because I feel like if you get into those habits early on, if you then do adopt like a full time job in a lab, I guess you're kind of already looking out for things that you can tweak and change. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point. It's something that's not really highlighted when you're at university and it's not until you're in that lab setting that you realise just how much waste is generated. I uh, I think that's that's part of the the focus on the, the publication end of science that you, you get at an undergrad degree and and maybe the less on the the day to day wrote uh, wrote ordering and sorting out your stock and and such like that actually becomes a lot of what day to day research is about. So um, there may be there may be trying to not scare off undergrads by saying. Yes, you'll have a lab manager. They will be terrified. They will beat you up if you lose all your samples in the post. You know, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, it, it certainly varies. Um, there, there's a lot of good sites though for our listeners to to start off with. Not only My Green Lab. Um, there's also a, a great blog called Lab Conscious, which is ultimately um, ultimately founded by New England Bio Labs. So it's not as independent as as My Green Lab, but they have loads of great tips and and that, that blog highlights efforts by academic research institutions to, to make their own practice um, more eco-friendly. So certainly if you're uh, an institution that doesn't have any initiative, initiatives, you can point to work by the NIH, by Stanford, by the University of Cambridge as institutions that have the research impact, but are also putting effort into more eco-friendly operations. So um, I thought that was really heartening to see that there's a lot of big hitters that are getting involved and it will certainly require constant pressure from day-to-day um, -day scientists to, to keep at that, but it does seem to be changing, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. With some of the companies that I work with um, for the analysis and separation side of things, they're definitely, they have company policies about their R&D elements and the sustainability factors. So things like vacuum pumps, um, where they're developing new, and they're trying to develop them without the use of oil so there is going right down to the r d level and the, the, the fact is that they're bearing in mind when they're developing 
new pieces of equipment, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Laura, did you have any more questions for, for us? Um, not so much questions, just I think, I guess the more pressure we, or the more awareness we raise, I guess, drives innovation like from manufacturers, like Karen said. So I just think it's beneficial to everyone. Absolutely. That seems like a, a good place to finish as any. So um, thanks to you both for your time on today's podcast. And thanks to our listeners again for joining us. Now we'll be back with another episode of Opinionated Science soon. But until then, please do share our podcast. And most importantly, please comment on it and let us know what you think. Please don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now. <laughs>